Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Luke 9. It's uh, 51 through 62. And we'll see uh, kind of interesting text, a challenging text, and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Now, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to come in fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, uh, Lord, even when we're not sure we understand it. And it stirs up things in us, Lord, of confusion or fear. Lord, we just proclaim to remember, Lord, that your word draws us to you. And so this morning, Lord, we ask for hearts that would be sensitive and tender to receive what it is you have to say, Lord, that we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive your good and redemptive work. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into this place, Lord, and acknowledge that you are king. Help us settle this morning into a posture of receiving from you, our King. We thank you for the gift of time together. I ask you to bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a text about discipleship. And if you're like me, as I've sat with this earlier this week, um, you may have had an instinctual response that I had, which is like, this is one of those texts that you're just meant to be like, I'm just supposed to try real hard right? Like this is just a text and a story about grit and about resilience, uh, about tenacity. And I think it's a fair perspective, but what I want to encourage you to think of is that those traits are probably good for discipleship, but I don't think that's the thrux of what Jesus is showing and demonstrating to his disciples and to his would-be disciples in this moment. I don't think that's the main takeaway. And I think for me, as I've sat with the text this week, there was a, a, an invitation in some ways to receive this from a different posture Because when I view it through that lens, if I think it's about tenacity and grit and resilience, I really view it through my discipleship. I'm thinking about me as I read this thing. And what happens for me is I sit with texts. If I read it through, if I make the story in essence about me, my efforts in an example like this become about God fitting into my plans, into my story. Ultimately, that's what the discipleship becomes about is somehow God is like going to amend himself or adjust himself or align himself with me. But the reality is when we're invited to see this through God's story and we are invited to remember this is God's plan, I think our efforts kind of get shifted around us adjusting to God's plan. 
And therefore, our discipleship becomes about God and not about us. And so I think there's really three things that I take away from a text like that with that lens in mind. And the first is that discipleship is about God's plan and not our plan. That discipleship is about us aligning our life with God's life, us aligning our plan with God's plan, which naturally begs the question, like, what is God's plan? And I'm going to say this throughout the whole time this morning, that God's plan is about healing and restoration that brings us back into union with God. We are broken people. The basic premise of the gospel, right? Like we were made for and with God. Something happened that broke that apart. And we've been living in that reality ever since. We've been living in that reality apart from God and therefore as a consequence apart from one another. And God's longing, his plan, is to bring us back into union with him and then with one another. But he does that through healing and restoration. He does that through healing and restoration. He heals our hearts. He restores our hearts. He takes the things that were broken and he makes them whole again. He takes things that were disintegrated and he makes them integrated again. And the result is union with God. And when we are one with God, we are one with one another. That's the trajectory. That's the plan. And so as we read a text like this and we see that Jesus was setting his way towards Jerusalem, I want you to think Jerusalem equals healing and restoration. So as Jesus is marching to Jerusalem, what he's marching toward is healing and restoration. And he's on a march here towards Jerusalem, both literally and figuratively, right? Like literally, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is in the northern part of Galilee. If you think of the, the ancient world kind of as a, a pill, he's on the northern part. He's moving south towards Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. In order to get to Jerusalem, he has to walk through Samaria. And Samaria is where we encounter the Samaritan village. These people were kind of like half Jewish, half integrated with other cultures. And so the Jewish people in the south did not look kindly upon them. That's why Samaritans were both like good, bad guys, if that makes sense. But also why it was so surprising when Samaritans became the good guy in Jesus's narrative is historically they were people who were opposed to God's story. And so Jesus is passing through. And in this case, the Samaritans reject him because he's going through on his way to Jerusalem, right? The capital of Judea, the place that represents the city of God, the place that represents the heart and the home of God. Dallas Willard, who you hear us quote like every other minute, we love this guy. And one of the things that he makes him so talented was his ability to put simplicity or simple language around complex ideas. And I remember hearing him say about heaven, heaven is simply the place where what God wants done is done. Heaven is the place where what God wants done is done. And so when I think of Jerusalem, I think of God's home. And when I think of God's home, I think of heaven. And when I think of heaven, I think of the place where what God wants done is done. And that's where Jesus is moving toward. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving to the place where what God wants done is done. And what does God want done? He wants to heal and he wants to restore and reunite us with him, a union with God. That is God's plan. That is what God is up to. That is what Jesus is moving toward relentlessly. And that's what our discipleship is meant to do. Our discipleship is meant to move us towards Jerusalem. It's meant to move us towards restoration and healing and union with God and consequently union with one another. That's what our discipleship is. And as we march along the way, we're going to see, just like Jesus experiences, distractions come our way, right? We are constantly being pulled away from Jerusalem. Some of these translations says that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem, he didn't just like look at it. He wasn't just wondering about it. He set his eyes, he fixed his eyes on it. He had tunnel vision, he was moving. 
persistently and relentlessly towards Jerusalem, again, the healing work of God that would result in the union with God. That is where Jesus was marching. That's where we're marching. And life is full of distractions that are attempting us to take our eyes off of Jerusalem. Constantly to take our eyes off of Jerusalem. And that's the second point that we can learn from this. I think it's discipleship is learning to confront those distractions. To confront the things that turn our eyes away from Jerusalem is what discipleship is about. It's not about earning anything. Grace is not opposed to uh, effort. It's opposed to earning. And so we're in this invitation and grace to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, to move, to take advantage of the agency we have and to set our feet and to set our face and set our eyes towards Jerusalem. But we're going to confront distractions just like Jesus did in this moment. And we see that Jesus' first distraction that he came across was, in some ways, a temptation to shortcut the process. I think James and John, well-meaning people, they, you know, experience rejection and they're like, God, bring the fires of heaven and destroy this place. Maybe you have that reaction to the things that oppose you. Um, it's not that unnatural of a reaction in some ways to be like, man, bring some judgment down on this place. Life apart from God has its own consequences. And I think there is place for judgment for sure. And I think that Jesus is given authority to judge. The scriptures tell us that he's the ultimate authority around judgment. I think in this particular moment, this scripture in this response from Jesus, his rebuke of his, of his disciples was not an absence of judgment. I don't think he was saying judgment doesn't matter, it doesn't exist. I think there is a space for that. And like I said, most of our consequences take care of themselves when we move our life away from the Lord. Right? Like when we don't create space for God, when we don't create space in our life to host him, we're going to have natural consequences to that. But in this case, I don't think that's what Jesus was rebuking. I think he's rebuking a shortcut. I think James and John and all their good intentions were offering Jesus a shortcut to God's plan. You think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, if you remember that, like Satan tempts him in three ways. And really, one of the things that ties all of that together is, in essence, a shortcut to ease his suffering. Satan's like, hey, Jesus, you're full of power and authority. You can do whatever you want. You can call the heavens down to get what you want, to ease your suffering. And each time, Jesus rejects that because Jesus understood that that would be a shortcut to redemptive suffering. It'd be a shortcut to God's plan. And so Jesus rebukes, he rejects James and John. He says, I'm not going to take a shortcut to God's redemptive plan for suffering. Jesus understood that there was really only one way to the fulfillment of God's plan, and that was through Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, again, healing and restoration that results in union with God. And the challenge with Jerusalem is it's kind of hard, right? Like Jerusalem, what does it represent to Jesus? He knows he's marching his way to what? Death and to suffering. But what he also knows is on the other side of that death and suffering is redemption. And he knows God's plan is that there's only one way to find healing, and it's through the cross. And what I mean by that is that there's only one way to find healing is that it's through death that we are resurrected. He understood, and we get to learn from him, that the only way to find healing is to go straight through the cross. To go straight through the things that hurt us. There's this remarkable story in Numbers that's uh, kind of bizarre. The Israelites are being bitten by snakes, and they ask God to, like, can you do something about that? Can you stop sending the snakes? And so Moses goes to them and says, or goes to God, he said, hey, can you stop sending the snakes? 
And God has this interesting reaction to this. He says, actually, I'm not going to stop sending the snakes, but when you're bit by the snake, what I want you to do is I want you to fashion a bronze serpent of a snake, put it up on a pole, and when they look at that pole, they will be healed. Like the snakes are still coming, y'all, right? Like in our day-to-day life, that's the experience we know is that the snakes continue to bite us. Some of that's our own problem because we just maybe handled the snakes, if you want to run with the analogy. But a lot of times those snakes sneak up on us, right? And they bite us unexpectedly. And that's the hurt that we receive from other people. But the reality of what we learn from that is that what God is saying is that the only way to find healing is to look at the thing that hurts you. The cross. You have to look at it. You have to go straight through the cross. And on the other side of the cross is redemption. It's resurrection. It's healing. It's wholeness. But we have to go through it first. And James and John were offering shortcuts to that. They were tempting Jesus to take his eyes off of Jerusalem and to seek out the safety that power and authority can give us, right? The sense of security that power and security can give us. These kids right here are lined up and they're going to Ecuador, which is an unknown place. For the most part, their resources in life have probably protected them from a sense of vulnerability. And one of the beautiful things about going outside of our cultures is that what happens is you start becoming more aware of your vulnerability. Resources mask a lot of our vulnerability, right? Like our invincibility that we feel and that we sense comes from the resources that we have, the power that we have, the authority we may have. And you go to any culture or any group of people that don't have power and authority, and when you start to talk about transparency and vulnerability, they just look at you scratching their head. They're like, this is our lived reality. And so the invitation that Jesus is giving us and what he's rejecting from James and John is the shortcut to the other side of the cross, right? He knows you have to go through it. You have to recognize the distractions that are in front of us. And the discipleship is about learning to recognize these distractions and learning to recognize these invitations that take our eyes off of Jerusalem and to bring them back to the goal, to bring them back to God's plan. So he rejects James and John's offer. And then we see these other would-be disciples. They offer similar distractions. And the sense of similarity is just simply being, take your eyes off of Jerusalem, Jesus. And they actually do it in ways that I think are much more common for us. Like, you know, the idea of using my power to, like, bring judgment and to smote a village is not something that happens on a regular basis for me. But the other distractions that these would-be disciples do lean into are much more common. The first one says, follow me. And Jesus gives this odd response. He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I think what's so interesting about this particular moment is you have to remember that Jesus was on the heels of rejection, right? Like in this moment, he was trying to stay in the Samaritan village, and the Samaritans were like, we don't want this guy. Last week, we read about the demoniac, and then the village that he was from, Jesus does something miraculous, and what's their response? Like, Jesus, go stay somewhere else. Jesus is rejected by his hometown, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to experience rejection. So when I view the response that Jesus gave through the lens of rejection, it makes a little bit more sense to me, right? Like, rejection leads us to a sense of isolation, an alienation. It makes us feel like we have no home. It makes us feel like we don't belong. And what I think that this would-be disciple was doing in that moment was doing something that I do all the time. I'm quick to bring comfort to those who are uncomfortable, thinking that that's a good thing. So I think this guy was proverbial in some ways, proverbially putting his arm around Jesus and be like, hey man, you're okay. I'm with you. You're not on your own. 
And again, that's not a bad thing, but the the reality is, is those things, those invitations to a temporary sense of belonging can take our eyes off of Jerusalem. The safety that we sense in that moment can be a distraction to our discipleship. It can be a distraction to setting our eyes on Jerusalem because it can make us feel like we have a temporary sense of home, right? That sense of belonging, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of company in some ways becomes the distraction in itself. And I will say, just to reiterate again, it's not bad, right? Like friendships are good. Belonging is good. Community is good. I am the community pastor. Fire me if I tell you that community is bad. But the reality is that these friendships that exist on a surface level can become a distraction to Jerusalem. What Jesus knew and what he was proclaiming in this moment was that he is not at home. He is saying, I am not home. So when the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, what he's saying is, I'm homeless, right? Where I am standing right now is not my home. It is not where I belong. It is not where you belong. Home is marked by by relationships that look like the Trinity. Relationships that are marked by reconciliation and hopefulness and love and submission and service. The things we read about in the Galatians text, right? Like the fruit of the Spirit are the relationships that we see the Trinity experience. The sense of balance, the sense of cohesion and being in rhythm with one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our destiny, relationally speaking. That is where we are heading. We know we are not in that space right now, for sure. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm not even going to for a second accept the temporary fix of having somebody pat my shoulder and saying that I'm with you that is going to distract me from the long-term goal of Jerusalem. And so he rejects it. He says, I am not home. You and me as disciples of Jesus do not belong here. And we experience the dissonance of that all the time, right? That creates dissonance for us. And I think the reason it creates dissonance is connected to the second interaction that he has with this would-be disciple who says, first, let me go bury my dead, my dead father. And Jesus has a really interesting reaction to this, right? Let let the dead bury their own dead. Does that not sound like the jerkiest thing you've ever heard? (laughs) So let's suppose for a second that Jesus is not a jerk, right? Like that the character of God is consistently kind and generous. So it's probably not what was going on. And so when I view the lens of this interaction through the story of God's plan of healing and restoration, and I view through the lens of distraction, what I see here is that Jesus is being tempted. Jesus is being tempted to take his eyes off Jerusalem by tradition. And I've struggled with the right word, so just roll with me on this. I'm not sure it is tradition, but what I do know is this, is that sometimes the, the, the stream that we live in, the soup that we are in, the water that we soak in, all of these things are the things that are so familiar to us, right? And the reality is a disciple, what we're saying out loud is that if the stream of the world moves this way, then I am intentionally moving this way, which means you're inherently moving against the grain, you're moving against the current. And discipleship is going to naturally move us away from our traditions and move us away from our culture. And what that really means, I think, is that it's an invitation to rethink and ask God to help us give us new eyes to see the things we call normal through his lens. 
I think it's an invitation for us to rethink reality in many ways and to see it through the lens of God's ultimate story of healing and restoration that ends in union with God. And I don't know what those things are. The list is probably really long in regards to the traditions and the cultures that we have. But I think about things like entertainment and money. I think about power. I think about gender and race. I think about sex. I think about how all of these components that kind of make us us is an invitation to understand and to re-understand exactly what do those things look like in the culture of God's kingdom versus my culture that I live in. And to follow Jesus means inherently there's going to be a sense of dissonance, a sense of disruption. And what we see from Jesus in some ways is not a rejection of culture. Again, I don't think, I mean, the second commandment tells you to honor your mother and your father, right? And this guy says, I'm going to go honor my mother and father. And Jesus says, no, you're not. That's not what you're going to go do right now. I don't think he's rejecting God's law in this space. I think he's saying that's a distraction from a bigger story that's happening in this space for me. My eyes are set on Jerusalem. And these traditions are going to, they're going to pull me off of God's ultimate plan to heal and to restore. And I think for ourselves, we have to consider how does the culture I live in just kind of naturally move me in a direction that I may not want to go myself, but God certainly may not be moving us. And as we live into the, the, maybe the antithesis of those cultural realities, what we're going to feel is a sense of disruption, and we're going to constantly be distracted to come back into inside the fences, if you will. And so I think our discipleship of Jesus is going to naturally take us beyond those fences. It's going to naturally put us in a direction that's going to make us feel slightly uncomfortable. It's going to make us feel slightly outside the realm. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, said it this way, that Christians live in an upside-down kingdom. Like what the world says is up, Jesus came and he said, actually, that's down, and vice versa. What the world says is down, Jesus says that's up. And I think for us in our discipleship, we are called to have a de- develop a different set of eyes to be able to lean into that invitation to live in this upside down kingdom. But we are constantly distracted, I think. We're constantly distracted because I think it's the, the invitation to safety, right? Like these things serve a purpose for us. And whenever I'm moving with culture, I feel great about it. And it's this false sense of safety in the same way that a home makes me feel like a soft sense. Uh, Uh, like a temporary sense of security, I think the people around us can do the same exact thing. Y'all, if you need, like, I mean, look at the last two and a half, three years, right? Like, everybody's finding their corner. Everybody's finding their people. And what you want to know more than anything else in the world around us is that you're with me, right? You're my kind of person. Culture naturally takes us to a place like that. And what we have to be willing to do is to call those distractions, to call them what they are, There are ways that move us off of Jerusalem because they give us a false sense of security. And Jesus' invitation is to see them for what they are, the distractions from the ultimate sense of healing and restoration that God's calling us to. That's going to cost us something. It's going to be disruptive for sure. And it's going to move against the culture around us. But apparently that's what discipleship is. And so I think we have to be honest with ourselves and maybe ask ourselves the question, how are the customs or traditions of the cultural grain I'm living in, how are they holding me back? How's my view of money holding me back from living in the direction of healing and restoration? How's my understanding of, of power? How's my understanding of gender? 
or of entertainment? How are all these things at play that keep me from living a more robust life in Christ? How do they create a temporary sense of security? Now, finally, the last would-be disciple, I think, offers the distraction of comfort. He says, let me go say goodbye to my family. Now, the reality is, again, Jesus is probably not dissing family, right? Like he's not saying family bad, run from family. I think what he's saying in this particular moment is that our family can be a tendency or maybe a symbol of comfort for us, a symbol of security. And he's saying discipleship, this call to participate in God's redemptive and restorative work that results in the union of God, setting our eyes to Jerusalem, our sense of comfort can be a distraction. In our discomfort, we can move towards comfort in a way that's unhelpful. And the reality is, and this is my lived experience, and I would imagine it's close to y'all's because I think I'm a relatively normal guy. And it's this, is that God longs to heal the broken things in us. That's the story. Like, what else is he healing, right? Like, Jesus said, I came to heal the sick, not the well. So the reason Jesus came back and what he's going to do in us, obviously, he's going to work through the things in me that are broken and bent, right? The things that are fragmented, he wants to make whole again. The things that are bent, he wants to make straight again. And so he's going to invite me on my road to Jerusalem to deal with those things. And those things aren't pretty, right? And I'm not going to like publicly and on an internet streaming service tell you all the things inside of me that aren't so pretty. But what I know and you know is that when you spend a moment like we do each and every week preparing our hearts for the table, what we know is that we aren't okay. And we hide and we run. We utilize all of these things that seem like good things on their surface to help create a false sense of security. And that little blanket for us serves a purpose, and we have to acknowledge that they serves a purpose for us. And Jesus' call to move back to Jerusalem, to fix our eyes onto Jerusalem, is a call to let that blanket go and address the reality that we are wounded people and we are broken people, and the security blankets that we put on ourselves are not meant to be home for us. We're not meant to be people who live in tents. We have a home for us. We have a kingdom or a mansion as Jesus tries to project for us in Revelation. We see through the Holy Spirit that God has something much bigger and better for us, right? And as C.S. Lewis says, instead we settle for mud pies when what's on offer for us is a vacation at the sea. This is an invitation for us to look at ourselves more openly and honestly and understand that when we recognize the parts of us that are bent and broken, God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, will heal And we get to participate in that. But we're going to move to comfort if we're distracted by it because it makes us uncomfortable to think about those things, to look at those things, to examine our stories, to understand the hurt that I've received, whether that was from way back when or whether that was this morning on my way to work or on the way to church for y'all or the person you're sitting next to. All of these hurts accumulate, right? They're like little traumas for us. And in our traumas, we want safety and security. And so we move towards safety and security in a way that keeps us from actually experiencing healing. And God's plan is to heal and restore, to move us back to union with him. And there's only one way through, and that's to Jerusalem, the redemptive suffering. And that's the third point here is that our discipleship is accepting the invitation that God's work in us is relentless. 
His desire is to have his nature permeate our nature. His desire to come into those parts of you and me and to bring healing to those parts. And he's not going to let up. He's not going to give up. And so we're invited constantly to let God deal with the things in our lives and ask him to renew and restore and to bring wholeness again. And he is not going to give up on that work. We can run and we can hide, but God's love or his redemptive reach has no end. He longs to heal. He longs to make us whole again. And that's the work that happens in our heads for sure. Like we, as if you think about who we are, we're people who have amazing minds that God has given us. And he wants to renew and restore our minds. He wants to renew and restore our hearts as well. The emotions, their emotional life that we live in day in and day out. He wants those to be healthy and whole. He wants our bodies to be restored. And when all three of those things work in tandem, it's called an integrated life. It's this invitation to lean into this integrated life that God has for us. And God is not going to give up on that work. He's not going to give up on making our minds whole again, our hearts whole again, and our bodies whole again, so that we can participate fully in the union of God that he has set out for us. And the best news, I think, is that God does not give up on this. The reason I say that is at the very beginning I said, you can take this text and you can make it about effort, right? You can make it about you. You can make it about how awesome and how smart or how talented or how diligent and resilient and how much grit I have. That is not God's story for us. God's story is he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we get to lean into that story on the way to Jerusalem and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to lean into his story that results in healing the results in wholeness and restoration for us, both with God and with each other. That's the good news. He didn't leave us on our own to figure this out for ourselves. And so our discipleship isn't about like trying harder. Our discipleship is about putting ourselves before God so he can do in us what he promises to do in us. We're not on our own in this story. So we come to the table each and every week, and what we'll do, I just want to pause for about 60 to 90 seconds, and I have two questions up on the screen for you guys that hopefully will prepare our hearts as we come to the table. And the first is, what are the distractions that are most tempting to you? When you think about this invitation to set your eyes on Jerusalem, to fix your eyes on Jerusalem, what are the most common things that distract you? Is it comfort? Do you turn to Netflix, for example? Is it tradition? Do you say, hey, that's just the way we've always done things around here? Or is it power and authority? Whatever those distractions would be, I imagine there's going to be one that resonates more than the other. And the second question to reflect on is in mind of the fact that God wants to do a holistic restorative work in you, we play keep away with God in some ways, right? Like we say, God, you can have my mind. I'm going to read the Bible every single day, but I'm not going to pay a lick of attention to the broken relationships that are around me. You know, where I'm going to be like Mr. Activist, I'm going to go and protest every single thing. I'm going to push for justice, but I'm not going to pay attention at all to the, the addictions that enslave me on a day and day basis. You get the picture, right? Like we look at part of us and we think I'm working on that part, but I'm just going to like set that part aside. And the invitation for God is for all of these things to be redeemed and restored and made whole again. And so when you think about your life, which parts of you are you the most likely to not let God do anything about? So let's spend a minute before we come to the table 
Let's ask God to help us see ourselves more clearly about the ways that we get distracted and maybe the parts of ourselves that we just say no thanks to God's work. Let's quiet our hearts. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would help us more clearly see the distractions that we have in front of us, Lord, and how we fall prey to them, Lord, and how we turn our eyes off of Jerusalem. Father, rather than condemnation, we ask for your conviction and the gift of your Holy Spirit, the promise of your Holy Spirit to lean into these spaces, Lord, and the parts of us, Lord, that we hold tight onto, Lord, we really keep away with you, Lord. We ask that you would give us the grace to lean into those spaces as well but also surround us with people who are healers, Lord. Help us surround ourselves in community relationships, Lord, that meet us in our brokenness. God, we know that we turn from distractions, Lord. We turn our eyes off of Jerusalem, Lord, because we love autonomy and control, Lord. And because of that, Lord, we sin against you and our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. God, the things that we do, the things we don't do, Lord, as a result, we have sinned. Lord, we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves, God. We haven't actually even let you love us. For these things, God, we are sorry. And we do repent, Lord. We turn from them. Lord, we ask that you'd have mercy on us and forgive us. Teach us how to delight in your will, God, your desire to heal and restore. Lord, how to walk in your ways with eyes fixed on Jerusalem. Lord, we ask all these things for the glory of your name.